This is Jason Albert, and you are listening to Nordic Nation from Faster Skier. May 1st marks the symbolic start of the annual training cycle for many aspiring cross-country skiers. With that in mind, we spoke recently with Steven Seiler. Seiler is a professor of sports science at the University of Adger in Christiansen, Norway. First off, you'll note Seiler is not originally from Norway. Second, Seiler has written and spoken extensively about physiological adaptations as it relates to endurance athletes. Seiler's mantra, the 80-20 training model, or in other words, the easy-to-intense ratio when it comes to training sessions, has been well publicized. I'll let Seiler speak for himself on that topic. But before we start, I mentioned a specific video several times during the interview. The video I'm referring to will be linked on the FS site. That video has Seiler speaking about the polarization model of training and how to manage training intensity. Okay, here's the interview. Okay, so first off, can I get you to introduce yourself and then explain a little bit how you ended up residing and uh, working professionally in Norway for, I think, something like 20 years now? That's correct, yes. Well, my name is Steven Seiler. I'm a professor in sports science. I am trained uh, at the University of Texas, or I did my PhD at the University of Texas at Austin back in the 90s. And during that time, I was interested in training, exercise physiology, the adaptive process. Uh, I, as a master's student, studied interval training. I used animal models, but while I was doing rat research, the next door Actually, uh, Lance Armstrong was being tested and lots of other athletes. I was a subject in studies. So I was kind of in in an environment at the University of Texas that spanned the whole spectrum from cellular models to elite athletes. And then as, as I was approaching the end of my PhD, I went to a sports medicine conference and I happened to meet a Norwegian gal. So that's the connection to Norway. This was back in 94 and the Winter Olympics that were in Lillehammer had just been held a few months earlier. And so I had watched that and and I knew about the physiology tradition of Scandinavia, uh, exercise physiology and bank saltine and all the different works. So I kind of was primed, you might say, for (laughs) <laughs> this chance meeting of a Norwegian who came from also a sports science background. And, and so the rest is history is, is I ended up moving to Norway after my PhD and was married to this woman for 12 years and have two children and, and uh, we're no longer married, but I still live here and, and am very happy. So how is your Norwegian? It's, it's fluent. I, I, I converse every day in Norwegian. Uh, I have a, a bit of an accent. So, you know, the, the typical thing that people will say in Norway is, you know, where do you come from, really? <laughs> you know, and so that's kind of the standard Norwegian question. Uh, they know that I'm. They can obviously tell I've been in Norway a long time, but they also know I'm not a native. So before we get into some specifics about your research and what you've been doing and how it might apply to cross-country skiing, you mentioned that before you headed over to reside in Norway that you were familiar with kind of this Scandinavian heritage of exercise physiology. 
Well, I think what I'm really talking about is a tradition that goes much farther back. You know, the when when they first started measuring what was happening in the human body in a in a pretty accurate way, you know, this was you know, 50 years ago, 50s we're talking. And and so it, uh, in Sweden, in Stockholm, at Karolinska Institute, for example, uh, they were doing some of the first work where they were actually measuring uh, physical capacity. You know, they were measuring oxygen consumption. This is pre-computer, pre, you know, <laughs> wireless and everything. So it was slow and painstaking work. But we're talking about some guys with names like Saltine, Ostrand, that really were the beginners. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen a Monarch uh, test bicycle in a laboratory. I have not. Okay, so Monarch is one of the original test ergometers, you know, and the word ergometer means a work meter. And so, the, even the concept of, of measuring work, you know, physical work on a treadmill or on a bicycle, this, this really came of age not that long ago, you know, some, some decades uh, in the past. So, that, that Scandinavian tradition dates back to 40s, 50s, 60s. Uh, you had a bit of that tradition in the United States over at the uh, Human Fatigue Laboratory on the East Coast. So, there weren't that many places where this was going on, and, and Scandinavia was one of them. And uh, there's a famous book, a famous textbook called uh, Book of Work Physiology. It's by Ostrom and Rodal. And I had read that as a student. I'd look, you know, it was one of the things I had looked at. And I was, I was just so impressed with what they were doing because they were really studying the human body in a kind of a, a, a rather intense, invasive way that we just weren't doing in the United States at the time. So one of the things in, you know, rewatching the video, and I remember I was struck right away by a lot of the graphs that you were presenting. And I was struck right, right away, as I'm sure perhaps some people are who don't immerse themselves in the literature every day, by the disproportionate amount of the, the high amount of level one training compared to more intensive interval training. And I'm wondering if you can kind of speak a little bit about that. And I liked how you referenced in that lecture that you had always you had grown up as I, I did as well. It's like no pain, no gain. So if you're not going hard, you're not making any improvements. But what you demonstrated and cited was that actually is not the case. That you know, limited interval stresses and a lots of low level easy training seem to be the recipe for most people to uh, performance improvements. Yeah, so so where this comes from is when I first got into it, I I did come from a background of kind of no pain, no gain and, and trying to be effective, which meant finding that red line intensity and just hanging in there as long as you can. And uh, But then as we started studying the research, the, the first thing that came along was there was some research about what's called training monotony. And there was some research on horses and on humans that suggested that when when horses, like for example, racehorses, they found that if they made their hard days harder, then they, they were okay. But if they made their easy days harder, if their training became too much the same every day, the horses collapsed. 
And so there was something about variability that seemed to be, be important for horses. And the same was seen in humans. And then I started, when I moved to Norway, I one of the revelations for me was watching an athlete. It was a female athlete. Her, her uh, sister had been an Olympic athlete. She was uh, a skier herself. We were in the forest. I was behind her, but I noticed that she got to a hill and quit running and started walking. And I knew this gal had a VO2 max of 65 mLs per kg, which is really quite good for a female. So she was definitely in shape to run up that hill. But she didn't. She walked fast, and then when she got to the top, she kept running. And so after a while, I had to figure out, well, what's going on here? Well, it turns out that, well, that day, she was on a two-hour run, and she did not want to reach a high blood lactate. She did not want to have a high intensity. So she was very disciplined in making sure that her intensity stayed below the lactate threshold. And to do that, she actually walked fast up that hill instead of running, even though she could have run. So that was interesting to me because it certainly wasn't anything I would have done uh, at that time. So anyway, so observing athletes, then I read from a, a cross-country ski coach in Norway at the time. He was coaching Thomas Allsgore. He was coaching Bjorn Daly, the you know the best of the day, and he wrote that the threshold training was kind of the worst of both worlds. It was hard physically demanding, but it, it wasn't a good stimulus for these already well-trained guys. And so, he was, he was talking bad about an intensity that's kind of the, the bread and butter of the American tradition is find your lactate threshold and, and, and go there and stay there as long as you can. And so, these things started getting me to think, well, what, what's going on here? And so then we did descriptive studies. We started measuring, you know, how are these athletes actually training, the very good skiers. And I started looking at how, you know, elite runners from Kenya were actually training. And, and so things started to come together around this intensity distribution that suggested that, hey, things aren't exactly what we think. It's not no pain, no gain, and it's not go hard every day. In Norway, they call it making the cake and eating the cake. And, and these, the volume, the daily grind, the, the, you know, long sessions uh, below the threshold, that's making the cake. That's building the basic capacity. And then some of those days you're going to push and look, you know, push to the extremes and that's eating the cake. Well, you, you can't eat more than you make. So, this is issue of balancing uh, the basic training with these really high intensity sessions that's that's very important and uh, every time I have looked at how the elite guys or, or females train what you see is they're so disciplined they they know what they want to do each day and they're not they're not pulled into these games of you know half wheeling and, and and you know or you get pulled into a situation where you go harder than you intended to and then the, the workout becomes shorter and harder instead of longer at lower intensity that that doesn't happen in the best performers here one of the things you brought up in your talk was you were talking about rowers and i don't know if you remember that but you were talking about the vo2 max requirement for a gold medal standard that went up uh, from the 70s, 80s, and 90s as these athletes started to do more polarized type training, I think. And, you know, you laid that out really nicely and, and 
and, and maybe you can bring that up a bit. But my question is, was there also, is there also something going on during that time where as these sports become more competitive, that itself selects for athletes with that are better that are better responders to a certain type of training and then also might come into the sport with a higher base vo2 max to start off with well sure i mean let's face it genetics matters uh you need to choose your parents carefully if you want to win a gold medal uh in the olympics but uh and and in the case of the rowing data what we were able to show was that you know, it wasn't body size that changed. They were the same weight and height over the 30 years. Rowers tend to be pretty big, you know, 90 kilos plus and 6'3 or 6'4 plus. And so it's that the, that part is, is part of that genetics. What, what we showed was is that as they started understanding the physiology of this six to seven minute competition, they realized it wasn't as anaerobic as they kind of conceived it to be and they started doing more and more volume and actually less of the really high intensity work so more volume and then the actual high intensity interval training became pushed towards what should i say longer intervals at slightly lower intensities in other words instead of 98 percent of max it was down at 92 and just that small change allows you to add a lot of minutes uh, you know to the total accumulated uh, minutes you do during an interval session and that seems to be pretty important to the adaptation process so kind of going off on another aspect of this but one of the things we've seen is that our best endurance athletes tend to choose to do a lot of their interval training at what we call zone four in other words one step below the highest aerobic intensity zone it's kind of around 90 92 percent of heart rate max it's hard but it's you know they can do eight minute intervals you know six seven eight to even ten minute intervals at this intensity and do several of them so they accumulate a lot of minutes at this intensity whereas we have tended and i say we the american approaches tended to be keep pushing the intensity uh instead of the duration of the intervals uh, whereas here i see that what we will tend to it, it lengthen the intervals at the same intensity. Does that make sense? It does. It does. Yep. And, and changing, you know, by decreasing your effort by three or four or five percent, yes, it correlates to longer time at a at a slightly lower intensity. Yeah, and and I've showed some figures. You know, you say the talk I gave, I, I've given so many different talks, so there's a bunch of them out there. But usually, there's some some common ground on most of these talks. And and one of the figures I show a lot is this idea of a tolerable accumulated duration uh, at, in during interval training. And it's there's not a linear relationship between that duration and the. The intensity, it's very nonlinear. So a small change in intensity, once you get into that high intensity zone, just a couple of beats lower on the heart rate scale, and, and you can go a lot longer. So what we see is that our elite athletes often will make a trade of a little bit of intensity for a lot of minutes of accumulated stimulus. 
and it works. We, we've seen a lot of data that just supports, number one, that they can still go up to the really high intensities, you know, peak out and, and have the adaptation there. But in that daily training, they are kind of pacing themselves so that, you know, the way they train is tolerable over weeks and months and years. From the cross-country perspective, and you you can speak to this, I suppose, better than myself, for sure. You know, there's oftentimes, you know, just lay people like myself or people who follow cross-country skiing from the States or from Canada. You know, it's like, what, what are the Norwegians doing? You know, it, it must be that they just have more athletes to select from, or it must be the long heritage. So from your perspective, you know, why have the Norwegians, you know, been so dominant? You know, what do you attribute most of that to? Well, let's face it. It's, we're the only country where cross-country skiing is our national sport. You know, I'm taking on the Norwegian perspective. Cross-country skiing is still the national sport here. That matters. So, there's no mystery here. There's no magic. It's Part of it is recruitment. It's only a country of 5 million, but... There's a fairly big percentage of them that, w- that will see skiing as a possible sport that they will sample in their childhood. And so there will be a fairly good recruitment to that sport. And there is here. So that's part of it is, you know, thousands of kids that do that try the sport. We're not talking millions because there's not millions and most Norwegians don't ski. So, you know, we always say that Norwegians are born with skis on their feet, but that's not true anymore. But thousands and thousands of kids are trying skiing. And so that's one ingredient. Ingredient number two, as you suggested, was there's a lot of tradition. We have a lot of people who know how to coach skiing. And so... In, at the club level, you've got a lot of people who are pretty darn solid on coach, basic coaching skills for skiing, both the endurance side and the, and the technical side. So that's an advantage. And then, of course, the, the role models are there. The, the, the female and male athletes are on the television from November to March. So that's, that's a role model for the kids. So all the ingredients are there. The tradition, the expertise at the local level, uh, the role models, the recruitment. But let me tell you, there's no the, – the training is – in fact, the, the Norwegians are super conservative when it comes to training. How, what do you mean by that? And I, and I mean it in a good way, in the sense that they are not easily drawn in down the rabbit hole of the newest fad in training. And I think that's part of the Norwegian secret to success. It's, it's almost like the anti-secret, meaning that they know what gets, what, what gets you on the podium. And they know that there are no shortcuts. So that they don't fall for whatever it is, the latest trend, the latest trick, because they know how you get there. And I think that's the magic. The magic is there is no magic in Norway. It's interesting. I can see that if you have an up-and-coming athlete and they're getting frustrated that they're not maybe making it to the next step, whether it's a regional team or the national team – um, that they might want a shortcut and be like, you know what, 
there's no way I'm going with this predominance of low intensity. I got to up my intensity to try to find the missing link. I mean, I suppose there might be some outliers out there that that's what they need to make a certain adaptation and have that manifest in performance. Or does that not apply? Does that make sense? Well, sure. There's there's individual variation, but but there's individual variation within a a kind of a, a best practice model. Uh, and I'll give you an example. I, I don't know. I'm sure you know the name Marit Bjorgen, arguably the greatest cross country f- skier on the female side ever. At least based on her numbers, her merits, her goals, she is. Well, ten years ago, or now it's about twelve years ago in 2005, she. She kind of fell apart, and she was, she had a coach that did move in this direction of some very, a lot of interval training, a lot of high intensity, and it seemed to work for about a year or so. She had a great year, I believe it was around two five, and then started kind of falling down the down the charts, and uh, she really collapsed. And this was the time when this four times four minute. Interval training was all the rage, uh, and there were promote- proponents of it in Norway, and she was kind of the poster child for it, and then she fell apart. And Egil Christensen, who is the trainer now, she, she, he, you know, they had to go back to basics and base, you know, back to the old tradition, which is putting in the hours, making sure there was a lot of volume, a more limited amount of high-intensity work, and since then, she's the greatest skier in the history of, of the sport. Uh, so, her way to back to gold medal performance was a, a conservative, you know, old-school approach that she had to return to. Because when they tried to do this really high-intensity approach, she fell apart. And that was a lesson for Norwegian skiing because there were a lot of young skiers that were going down that rabbit hole. And that was when Olympia Toppen, uh, I was actually engaged with them, worked to, to help say, look, we've got to make sure that we have our data, that our institutional knowledge is actually quantified and published so that we don't fall into this trap again or that we don't make this mistake again in Norway. From your perspective, are are athletes and maybe specifically cross-country athletes, are they fairly open about giving you or your colleagues access to their training logs and their testing values? Well, the, the the elite guys are pretty careful, but a guy named Espen Tunnison, uh, they he and others uh, several years ago initiated a process where they were, you know, they said we really need to have institutional knowledge about the training process. It's always been a tradition in Norway, or at least for many many years, to to keep training diaries. So he pursued. You know, champion athletes in a number of sports, orienteering, rowing, uh, cycling, cross-country skiing, and asked for them. A few people said no, but a lot of the skiers said yes, and also other, you know, rowers, runners, and so forth. So, they contributed after their careers were finished, some even during their career, but mostly after they contributed their training diaries. Uh, allowed him to digitize these diaries, meaning to convert the paper, you know, and, and digitize it over to to data, uh, to Excel files, basically. And then now the Norwegian elite sport, they have a internet-based training diary, a standardized training diary online. So now 
any elite athlete in Norway, at least they want them to be using the electronic training diary, which gives a, con a continuous data flow in terms of, you know, both to, to do individual coaching and adjustments, but also just best practice. What are, what are our athletes doing and what is, how does it relate to performance? So this is part of the, you know, if you want to understand training, you have to measure what's being done. You have to, it's dose response, you know, just like in, uh, you know, if I have high blood pressure, take the medicine, I have to know how much I take and what's the response. And if you want to understand training, you have to know what you do and then you have to know what the effect is and over time you build up a lot of institutional wisdom and in how the training process works and i don't mean this to be a loaded question i mean it's actually like a why do you think some elite athletes might be a little more guarded about you know here are my values and here are my what i'm doing and how it's manifesting because at the end of the day we all see the result sheet anyway well, you know, I, I guess every everybody's got that they would like to think that maybe they're doing something a little smarter. I remember an example is uh, uh, Olaf Tufta. Now, he's a rower from Norway. He won the Olympic gold in the single skull in 2004 and 2008. Uh, so, two, two Olympics in a row. And he uh, he provided his training data, and it was reproduced in a book. I mean, they could tell you exactly how many hours he trained the year of his gold medal and the intensity distribution and everything. And he just said, he said, look, just because I give you my training program doesn't mean you can do it. You know, so, so that was his deal was he didn't feel like it was a – he was giving away anything because he said there's nothing magic about this, but you got to do it. You have to execute it. It, that's what makes you a gold medalist, not writing it down. Uh, so I think that's most of the athletes have that view, but some of them, possibly just because they don't want the media, uh, you know, like uh, Ola, uh, let's take Bjorn Daly, you know, he, he, I don't think he allowed his data to be published. And, and he, he probably just didn't want the media storm because then you get everybody trying to nitpick and ask what they did here and how they did this and, and you know, so some of them just, just want to stay, they don't want to get involved in the discussion, the, the dissection of their training. We have a lot of, say, master's level athletes that read our publication. And I hear lots of different things, you know, that 40 or 50 year old athlete who's still aspiring to, to meet a certain objective for themselves. What are your findings in terms of how what you see in elite, elite athletes translates to, say, 40 50 year old masters athletes yeah i'm 52 or coming up on 52 so i'm certainly in the in the bracket the age bracket uh where you know i'm feeling the the, the fact that i'm mortal and i would say that everything we've done so far in terms of studies i've done studies cooperating with uh spain and and here in norway and and so forth is that age really doesn't change the formula the the basic intensity distribution remains uh, relevant and important and, and effective. Now, I do think that as we get older, maybe the value of strength training may actually become greater, particularly, you know, once the testosterone levels decline and there tends to be a loss of muscle mass, probably 55 plus, maybe, you know, you start thinking about those things. I think maybe then I would say perhaps the strength training component becomes more important, but the the basic intensity distribution 
uh, trying to avoid doing the same intensity every day, that physiology stays the same. It's just that, you know, max, max heart rate's going down slowly. So you have to adjust, of course. You know, the, the, the older athlete will tend to become more and more comfortable with longer sessions, and they probably do have a harder time mobilizing because that's one of the things we lose as, old, as we age is that sympathetic drive. Basically, that testosterone and epinephrine surge that you have is in your youth that can just really mobilize anaerobic performance. And just to have you describe it, what would you say is that – um, a proper intensity distribution over, say, you know, a year training cycle? Well, we've, you know, I've used a couple of terms for the last 12, 14 years. One is 80-20. Way back in, I think, 2004 or something, I wrote that approximately, I think then I wrote 75, 5, and 20. But it comes down to about 80% of the of the sessions should be at lower intensity, meaning not above the lactate threshold. And then about 20% of the session should be hard or above the lactate threshold. That was what we have seen with all of these descriptive studies. And then we've applied that formula and we've seen that it works with recreational athletes. So 80-20, and that's based on sessions, meaning out of every, in theory, you know, every 10 sessions, then not more than two or three would be hard. Does that make sense? It does. And so it's not, and correct me if I'm explaining this wrong, but it's number of sessions, 80, 20, not necessarily percentage of time in a specific zone. That's right. And and if you do, like, if you look at our elite, we've got data from gold medal skiers, the year of their best performance, their entire intensity distribution. And if you look at it, for for we have i think the study we published in plus one was 11 gold medalists they were at 90% below threshold by time if you do it based on just minutes in the zones then they're only up in zone you know 4 or 5 the, the high intensity 10% of the time well that that makes sense really when you think about it cuz a long run may be 3 hours Whereas a high-intensity interval session may be effective 40, 40 minutes, you know, six, five times eight minutes, for example. That would be 40 minutes of, of time. And of those 40, not all 40 would be up in high zone because you have some transition time. So, if you use, when you use time in zone, you actually underestimate the high-intensity component. That's why we use, that's why we count sessions. What we do is we kind of basically put each session in a box, we say this was a low intensity session, this was a medium intensity session, this was a high intensity session. We count sessions instead of counting minutes in zone. The both work, but we basically say what was the goal of the session? Was it an interval session? You know, you may have warmed up for twenty minutes and cooled down for twenty minutes, but what really mattered was that you did, you know, eight times five minutes at ninety percent. So you did so this was a high intensity session. And when you do that, you get a bit different intensity distribution because you end up getting even more of the intensity being lower than if you just count sessions. Okay. And that, the reason I wanted to clarify is because when I look at some of the graphs, I'm like, wow, they don't look like 80-20. They look more like, like you were saying, 90-10. I mean, there's just like a little sliver of that red coloration denoting you know, that, that level five, level four type area. 
the, the skiers tend to count minutes, and I mean, and they're fastidious. I mean, they they, they are they're very careful with their uh, you know they'll they count every minute and how which where it goes and so forth. So they even they will even include a race in their training diary. You know that that race was was this many minutes of high intensity and this many minutes of warm up and so forth. So they're pretty we've even published work on the way they the way the elite athletes in Norway, the skiers, the way they uh register their training just to see if they're actually accurate and, and they are. So they don't cheat. Anything else that you would like to add that I haven't asked? Oh, well, you know, you asked me about this secret. I, I'll tell you a story. The one time, the, one of the Olympic uh, Federation guys was hearing about a conference in Denmark where they were talking about nothing but high-intensity interval training. He said, you know what? This is good news for us. This just means we're going to be winning more medals. Uh, and, and again, it's that boring conservative idea that, that you got to do the work, you got to do the volume. Uh, in cross-country skiing, the, the rule of thumb is probably about 800 hours a year. Uh, some are doing more, but it's you know around the 800-hour-a-year mark, effective training time, and 100 hard sessions. You know, so it's not fancy. It's not, you know, it's just they're doing the work. Maybe uh, I think there has been greater emphasis on upper body capacity just because of the ski technique issues. And there's been more very specific high-intensity strength training in recent decades. Uh, again, it's a function of some technical issues. You know, uh, the balance between lower body, upper body contribution to propulsion. Uh, but that's more just adapting the training to the biomechanics. The basic training is, is boringly consistent you know i apologize i wish i could tell you something more sexy uh some secret strategy but it's it's about getting out in the woods and doing the you know right now it's may in norway and the national team is running you know they're in the and they're in the forest they're on the hills they're doing the work all right well have a great day and or a good evening on your end and thank you thanks a lot have a good morning bye thanks for listening to the steven seiler interview on nordic nation 